Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I've been absolutely shocked at the relentless mawkishness of our television news and our broadcast news in general. We train soldiers to go to war. And seriously, life is daily war. You can have non-alcoholic mulled wine, Liam, but you can't have actually have a bloody gin and tonic. There is a reluctance to put forward a line of thought that is orthogonal to the orthodoxy. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. This is, of course, our final trip to Planet Normal in 2020. And what a year it's been. We're devoting this episode to an end-of-year review, a roundup of clips from our favourite Planet Normal interviews, which themselves tell the story so far of COVID, lockdown, of the Brexit endgame, of the ups and downs of a truly tumultuous year, which, since our first Planet Voyage back in May, we've been delighted to share, haven't we, Alison, with our incredible Planet Normal listeners. We certainly have, Liam, I remember you suggesting that we did this podcast. And as you know, I didn't know what a podcast was, uh, but we we overcame that initial small problem. And I said, but it would be a really bad time to launch it in this year, wouldn't it, during lockdown? What a ludicrous time to start a podcast. But you were right, co-pilot Halligan. Now, that's not a sentence you often hear from your co-pilot. You were absolutely right. The capsule of common sense, I think, has kept both of us going and, of course, the fantastic listeners who've piled in. Just yesterday, rather a good way to end the year with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and hooray, Brexit trade deal going going through Parliament. Can I just point out that Theresa May stood up in the House of Commons and said that her deal in 2019 was a better deal on the table. Cue hollow laughter. <laughs> chuck, chuck a few cans from the, the back. The country that I love. <laughs> <laughs> The country that I love, which I wish to sell to 27 other countries and pay them for the privilege. And also what we've seen, of course, this week, Liam, is all those people who said that Boris wouldn't be able to get a deal. And indeed, he was agitating to go World Trade Organization terms. What a dreadful man. And are those uh, parties now voting for the deal they said that he couldn't get, Liam? Well, the Labour Party are, aren't they? Because Keir Starmer's realised that if he abstains, he'd look really silly opting out of the huge moments of British history. But that hasn't stopped the SNP voting against this deal, having said a no deal will be a disaster. The DUP in Northern Ireland, for their own reasons, and of course, Ed Davies, Lib Dems. It is obviously a huge moment in news terms with the Brexit bill, with the Oxford vaccine, as you said, that will speed up our ongoing vaccination programme. And all the while, of course, the UK's tiered lockdown is getting tighter. But Mm -hmm. let's start with our 2020 retrospective. 
Remember, Alison, back in May, our first ever mm, guest, he was the did. postman termed Home Secretary, uh, rock star Labour politician, in the eyes of many, one of the best prime ministers we never had, Alan Johnson. How do you think we're handling as a country getting the schools back? I know you put great store by education, and yet, of course, the education divide has just been widened, I think, during this yes. lockdown. Oh, absolutely. And uh, so... The government was absolutely right to try and get a a measured partial return on 1st of June. I can understand the unions questioning that and asking, you know, for equipment and all the rest of it. But to actually you know, put teachers and even parents at the heart of this issue when it should be children at the heart of it seemed to me a, a big mistake. Once again, Keir Starmer didn't follow them down that route, which was uh, – which would have been tempting, but he uh, he kept his counsel on that. So I think they're right to do it. You're, you're, you know, you're a former union leader, famously. You know that world incredibly well and a phenomenal track record in that world. It strikes me that the teaching unions, some, some of their leaders have been incredibly unreasonable, telling teachers not to cooperate with the government at one stage. Yeah, I, they got it wrong. And sometimes, you know, trade union leaders have a tin ear for what the public thinks. You know, sometimes they rail against Labour politicians for not doing what they want to do. But I tell you, Labour politicians have a much closer ear to the public than trade union leaders. Trade union leaders sometimes don't even have a good ear for what their members are saying. It's their activists that dominate. And I've got the greatest respect, incidentally, for the two union people involved, Mary Busted in particular, I've known for a long time, but and and the other guy who came from the National Union of Teachers, uh, I think they're good people. But they got this wrong, and they read it wrong, having sought the assurances that they have and hopefully got them in terms of class sizes, whether you can keep social distancing in these situations. After having danced the war dance and had the meetings with Secretary of State, etc., then find an elegant way to, to say, right, okay, we're... We're assured now. So that was back in May, Alison, and here we are again. Will our schools reopen in a week's time? We just don't know. And again, the teaching unions, as Alan Johnson said, are seem to be really dictating policy to the government. I think Alan was absolutely spot on about this gulf, in fact, between the unions and some of their members. I mean, the latest survey shows that the majority of teachers do think schools should be kept open and head teachers overwhelmingly want their schools to be open. And that's no, no surprise, is it, Liam, when we saw this week facts about children having suffered from eating disorders, extraordinary mental health problems and things accelerating during the pandemic because schools shouldn't just be seen as possible vectors of infection, which they aren't really anyway. The fact is it's safer for children to be in school than to be at home. And it's shameful, really, that, that the government should even be contemplating caving into this. That's what I think. So that was in May. In June, you then landed an interview, Alison, with the former head of MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove. I did. And Richard is always the best value. I mean, he's incredibly well connected and discreet, but he always lets drop when you talk to him one absolutely extraordinary fact. So, Richard, can I ask you if there are telltale sections of the genome in COVID-19 which reveal that this virus, which, let's face it, has killed 
tens of thousands of people and caused global economic carnage, if it turns out to be what you described to me as an engineered escapee, what would be the implications for China's position in the world? Well, I think the most important implications is it means you're more likely to build a vaccine that works if you know precisely. So that's the first point. The second point is, well, I, I suppose it raises the issue if China ever were to admit responsibility, does it pay reparations? Mm. I mean, obviously, you can't change the sort of aggregated human tragedy that is represented by the pandemic. But I think it will make every country in the world rethink how it treats its relationship with China and, you know, how we internationally or the international community behave towards the Chinese leadership. But I think there are two things that the uh, Chinese leadership are terrified of. There are two viruses, COVID-19 and how the world sees that issue. And there's no question they're struggling to control the narrative and they're losing control of it. Mm. But the second, of course, is the virus of democracy in Hong Kong. And I think that the issue that surrounds Hong Kong is the danger that that virus is injected backwards into China. Mm. I mean, the Chinese population are used, as it were, to obeying their government. But clearly, those attitudes are changing. There is you know, a much more dynamic, a much more educated, a much more critical view of the Chinese leadership. And you, know, you look at the stories that once heard of the attempts by the leadership to lock down any debate about the origins of the pandemic and the way that people have been arrested or silenced. Mm. I mean, we shouldn't really have any doubt any longer about what we're dealing with. Which brings us to the conspiracy theory, I guess, that an engineered escapee, the virus, could not possibly have been engineered with a view to causing global turmoil so China could benefit from it, could it? No, I don't. Uh, absolutely. Because, I mean, China itself has suffered hugely and probably more than we realise because they will have not published the true figures. I do think that this started as an accident. OK, once it started, there are things about the Chinese behaviour which are completely shocking. And, of course, the Chinese must have felt, well, if they've got to suffer a pandemic, maybe we shouldn't try too hard <laughs> to stop our competitors are suffering the same disadvantages as we've got. There was nothing deliberate about the origins of it. I mean, the research into viruses, well, I, I, I won't go into the sort of motives for the research, but the medical motives are, are quite well understood. But it's a risky business if you make a mistake. Really astonishing interview, Alison. It rightly hit front pages, not just in the UK, but across the world, an extremely switched on, plugged in man, the former head of our intelligence service, of course, saying that in his view, he had understanding and intelligence that the virus was man-made, but not deliberately disseminated by the Chinese, but perhaps deliberately covered up. A really astonishing interview. Isn't it interesting, Liam, that at this phase, we've slightly forgotten China and where the blame for all this chaos we've been enduring belongs. But a, a survey caught my eye this week, I know you'll have seen it, that China's GDP is set to grow 8.2% in 2021. That's the most in 10 years. And China will overtake the US by 
2028 as the world's largest economy. So a bit of me says bitterly, I mean, it's quite extraordinary that this nation, which Sir Richard Dearlove insinuated, had covered up the origins of this plague, now looks set to really benefit hugely from it while we are all down the toilet, aren't we? Is, is that fair, Halligan? I think that is fair. And we heard, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago from Mark Higgy, the former mm. Aussie ambassador to the EU, who reminded us all as if we needed reminding how the Chinese have attacked the Australians by limiting mm. their trade because the Aussies have been bold enough to call for a, a, an international inquiry into why China didn't tell the world about this virus at the back end of last year. And this will absolutely dominate diplomacy going forward. And as Sir Richard Dearlove said there, the idea of reparations will become a live issue once we're all through this in 2021. But continuing with our rather heavyweight theme, we're accused of being frivolous sometimes, but from Sir Richard Dearlove to Lord Mervyn King, as another interviewee in late June, of course, Governor of the Bank of England for the best part of a decade, and he had some really worrying and equally prophetic things to say about the financial implications of COVID and the possibility that it could cause another financial crisis. In your previous book, Mervyn, The End of Alchemy in 2016, you wrote, and I quote, another economic and financial crisis would be devastating to the legitimacy of a democratic market system. Don't we face another economic and financial crisis. Stock markets are massively overvalued. The bond market is a bubble. No, I think we're facing a, a serious challenge in the next five years, even if we find a vaccine fairly quickly and get out of COVID-19. The situation before we entered this problem was one where the world economy faced very many difficulties extraordinarily low interest rates, which really are not compatible with the operation of a market economy, overvalued financial markets, and high amounts of debt. And I think the immediate concern facing us in the next few years is going to be that the very high levels of debt that we entered COVID-19 crisis with have been exacerbated with even higher levels of debt. So I think we should expect to see many defaults in the next few years as businesses struggle and as many governments in parts of the world will also struggle to repay their debt. So I think defaults could be the trigger of another financial crisis down the road. How much longer, Mervyn, do you think that the Western world, including the UK, can continue to, quote, print money, can continue to rely on quantitative easing in order to defer, if you like, tough fiscal decisions. Because the reason governments can borrow so much at the moment and interest rates can stay low, it's basically because central banks are massively expanding their balance sheets, right? What's happening in the short run, I think, is that central banks are helping to smooth the time path of the enormous issuance of government debt over the next six to 12 months. And provided governments can repay central banks, some of that borrowing and smooth that over that period, then we may not be in too much trouble. But the real problem, I think, is a much deeper one, which is that people have got into their heads the idea that if the economy is growing slowly, then whatever the cause of that slow growth, the answer has to be more central bank easing, whether negative interest rates or just printing more money. That was the moment, I think, Alison, when 
Planet Normal was still quite young, but the business section started to take notice of our podcast. Again, a pretty authoritative figure there saying important things. And, you know, we admired Mervyn King so much, didn't we? Not just for his candor, but also what he said about social mobility. This is a Wolverhampton boy from a grammar school background who, you know, Cambridge, Harvard, London School of Economics, who said he was really proud that he was the first ever state school educated governor of the Bank of England. He's really epitomises, doesn't he, the, the kind of person we wanted to seek out and to champion someone who's ascended very, very high into the establishment, but who still talks the language of the common man and was a great visitor to Planet Normal. And you'll remember also we had another guest, Luke Johnson, the entrepreneur, like Mervyn King, warning of these consequences to business and to the economy. And you've emphasised throughout that there's a false distinction between lives and livelihoods. The economy is life. We're already seeing, aren't we, tragically, people, you know, starting to be worried about whether they can feed their own families. So I think that a lot of listeners will perhaps be surprised that it's been a Conservative government which has remained deaf to the cries of business and to the demands of the economy throughout this dreadful period. I mean, is it forgivable given the nature of the medical crisis? I'm I'm not sure now. I think since Mervyn King spoke, and I remember a moment in the interview when I said, economic downturns cost lives. And Mervyn King Mm. says, quite, absolutely, you're correct. And for me, that w- that emboldened me to write more about the economic mm. costs of COVID at a time, Alison, when it was not acceptable in polite society to write about the economic consequences of COVID. It made you some kind of, in Maynard Keynes's famous phrase, a sort of desiccated calculating machine rather than mm. somebody showing humanity. But we're seeing, of course, the implications of the economic and business downturn on health, not just mental health, on lives as well as livelihoods as you've said. And we are, from the Telegraph, it is a paper broadly off of the centre-right, and yet we've tried, haven't we, in our selection of guests to bring our listeners, people from across the political sphere, if you like. And our next guest epitomises that, Trevor Phillips, who was born in British Guiana, uh, came to London, grew up near me. I've known him for many years, a lot of affinity with him. We had very similar upbringings, me with my Irish Catholic background, the first in my family to go to university as well. And he's somebody who is very much a Labour Party politician, but the Labour Party has suspended him and he remains suspended because he's had the audacity to speak out, as he sees it, about some of the absurdities of the identity politics held on the left. In recent weeks, the police have come in for a lot of criticism, haven't they? Particularly the Met now. Mm. Where are you on this very contentious issue of stop and search? The former Surrey Police and Crime Commissioner, Kevin Hurley, recently pointed out, criticised for it, that uh, in his view, stop and search is largely about stopping black-on-black crime. Do you think that's a valid point to make? There is clearly a problem. And it may actually simply be a problem of perception. And when we look at the data, we will find that actually what we think is happening is not what's really happening. But the first thing is we need to deal with the problem of perception. And there clearly is a perception that's been created that people of colour and particularly black men 
are more likely to be stopped and stopped in a way that is not courteous, that is not founded mm. in some proper crime fighting activity. And, you know, we've all been there. I mean, it, it, it does seem absurd to someone like me when I was in my 40s and my 50s still being stopped mm. and you hear them phoning in and that what they're doing is checking that you own the car that you have had for 10 years. Yeah. I mean, it's humiliating and it, 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 it's ridiculous. Yeah. I completely get, by the way, the tension that the police officers may feel in certain circumstances. But the truth is that this is not a sort of equal encounter. When they put on the uniform, they bear a special responsibility because they also have special powers. We have to remember we are dealing with human beings here. And yeah. it doesn't matter if you're black or white. If a police car pulls up behind you, you may be the most law-abiding citizen in the world, but none of us can escape the feeling of a slight fear yeah, your stomach in turns. that situation. And in those situations, people, ordinary people, do things that are not, you know, not normal. And you might then say afterwards, why don't you stop and so on. But look, let's put ourselves in that situation. Yeah. In the same way as we might say, let's put ourselves in the situation of the police officer who knows that he or she may be stopping a vehicle that has weapons in it. So everybody just needs to back off and take a breath here and stop taking positions, whether they are, by the way, verbally attacking the police or, in the case of the police, being overly defensive. So the general point I want to make is that there is a problem and it has to be recognised. Straight talking from Trevor Phillips there. I do admire him. Uh, he's the former chairman of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. But more than that, he's been somebody who's dared to tread on some third rails in British politics, saying that, for instance, as he did there in, in Stop and Search, the police do have a difficult job. For many on the left, just saying that is some kind of sacrilege. Oh, I love Trevor Liam. I, I, I think he's such a valuable voice in our society at this time, as you say, when everyone's treading on eggshells. And, you know, he has the the background and the authority to speak out. And you remember that we talked about that survey, which had found that Black Lives Matter had actually exacerbated racial tensions in the UK. And I, I feel very grateful that, that Trevor's out there batting against these things, because it's less easy for white people, obviously, to do that, even though we we try in a quiet way. I do think it's interesting looking forward, Liam, to think about, is this Conservative government going to hold the line against identity politics, which is anathema, particularly to all those red wall seats, which voted in huge numbers for Boris? And it hasn't looked that promising so far, although I do see that just a few weeks ago, the government has said that unconscious bias training will be scrapped for civil servants. They're going to end the mandatory courses. So that's a kind of green shoot for me that the Conservative government will push back on some of these things which claim to be all about unity, harmony and equality, which actually breed a really unhelpful, uh, poisonous divisiveness, I think. It begins as a love story. 
Couples who meet as young activists, bonded in a fight against injustice. We seem to have similar outlooks in life. He often made me feel very special. It felt like we were in love. I remember it being quite magical. As far as I was concerned, we had a future together. I fully did envisage my future with him. But then he starts acting strangely. Suddenly there were secrets and there were inconsistencies and there were things that didn't make sense. Then one day he leaves. I came home from work and I realised immediately that he'd gone. Vanishes without a trace. And the reason why these men disappear is so disturbing, it's led to a formal apology from the state. I never for a moment thought that it would be what it actually turned out to be. This is Bed of Lies, the true story of one of the biggest scandals in recent British history and the latest podcast from The Telegraph. Talk about the Stasi in East Germany. That's not how we understand our society. A tale that travels from the safety of a loving bedroom to the very heart of the law. Search for Bed of Lies wherever you're listening to this. All the interview clips you're hearing here, you can go back and and mine the riches of our interview archive. It's all there on the Planet Normal archive, which you can see on the Telegraph website or on iTunes. That Trevor Phillips interview, I think, is worth listening to in full. And as we went into the high summer, into July, as lockdown eased, I think we all drew breath and attention went on to the NHS and how it had coped and how it might cope if there was a second wave. That's when you really started burrowing away and you transformed from Alison Pearson into Velma. You became this sort of statistical warrior and I became and you became Velma and then I became Shaggy. Hey, Scoobs! And we got the whole Scooby-Doo thing going because you were there the mystery machine, finding out this information from within the NHS. A lot of your information came and still does come from NHS insiders. And one of the NHS insiders that you found was a nurse. We checked her out. We made sure she was a nurse. She was who she said she was Mm. from her phone calls and emails. And we called her Holly. And then you put her on the air. We saw a report this week that said that more than 200,000 people could die from the impact of lockdown and protecting the NHS. Mm -hmm. Does that figure surprise you? No, not at all. And I don't think it'll surprise most people in healthcare, to be perfectly honest. We've been saying for months now that services just aren't running at anywhere near normal capacity and we're building up more problems than COVID has caused by a mile. Like the amount of patients... We had a lot of deaths in my area, but we're going to have an awful lot more um, from cancers that are going undiagnosed, from strokes that haven't been treated. And And it cuts both ways. We have hospitals that didn't want patients to come in and we have patients who don't want to go into hospital because mm. of... I I think what's been an awful amount of scaremongering from the government, unfortunately. Do you think it's been excessive, the scaremongering? Do you think people haven't got things in proportion? Definitely, definitely. Like if you're at home and you think you might be having a stroke or a cardiac arrest or you find a lump, you should be going into hospital. And that's forgetting about all the routine stuff that's been missed, all of the regular cancer screenings that Mm. people haven't been going to, all of the stuff like the breast mammograms that you 
you know, they just catch all the cancers that aren't always necessarily easy to find, like cervical cancers. So there's going to be all this stuff that's been missed because people haven't gone for obvious symptoms and all this stuff that's going to have been missed just from routine testing. Mm. And there was no reason why all of this couldn't have been being done. You know, we have PPE now. At the beginning, there was a bit of a scramble for it. But by like mid-April, I would say most trusts had enough PPE to have continued to at least have run beyond the skeleton COVID system, which was all the hospitals seem to be. Like, I have a lot of friends who work in the hospital. I'm a district nurse. And the hospitals were empty, by all accounts. Beyond the ICU and the COVID wards, they were empty. A&E was empty. MAU was empty. Everywhere was empty. Like, people... And there were no visitors, which only added to the kind of echoing halls, to be honest. So I think there was a middle ground to be struck between keeping the hospitals safe. And when it became apparent we weren't going to get this massive, overwhelming um, first wave, I think we should have started up services sooner. That was a really amazing interview for me, Alison, because I think Nurse Holly, as we called her, we changed Mm. her voice, a district nurse of of huge experience. She was one of the first NHS insiders to highlight back in the summer the danger of what had become a national COVID service Mm failing to deliver essential non-COVID services, not least cancer screenings, not least cancer screenings, not least treatment for heart disease, which itself was leading to more deaths. I know you laugh at me, Liam, for being Velma. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna hold my hand up and say there may be some exorcism of that failed math so level <laughs> as I don the Velma specs. But I have been driven, I think, by a desire to know what's really going on. And I think many of us have come to the conclusion that we're not entirely being told what's going on. And someone like Holly, who was going out day after day to see 12, 15 patients in her PPE, trying to call up GPs, hospital departments, asking them to see her very, very sick patients and being rebuffed. Yeah. That really struck home. I found it one of the most moving interviews I've ever done. I was kind of quite in tears when I was listening to her. I think she's a remarkable person. I'm incredibly grateful that Our Planet Normal contains people like Holly and Claire, the GP, the London GP we spoke to, also seeing desperately upset, depressed people who have been stuck in flats with disabled children and um, spouses with dementia. I think there's been this emotional dimension that's been lacking from the conduct of the pandemic. It's been conducted by middle class men, Liam. Guilty. And well, yeah, but I don't want to say this in a kind of accusatory way, but there was an LSE lecturer wrote this week about the fact that The middle class men are making all the decisions and they are the people who put quantity of life above quality of life, whereas it's the young and the old who tend to prioritise quality of life. And I think what Holly was saying to us in that interview is it's been got out of all proportion. The scaremongering will end up having caused more deaths and more suffering than the virus itself. And hasn't that become one of our themes on Planet Normal. Yeah, I think what we've tried to do with Planet Normal, as well as having a laugh, which is very much in our (laughs) collective personality, we've also tried, haven't we, to 
undertake and present some rigorous journalism. And I think you've exemplified that with your burrowing away at NHS figures, really get rolling your sleeves up and, and diving into the databases with your with your maths O level in your back pocket. <laughs> and and I, I have to say, I think that interview with Nurse Holly, as we called her, was game changing because mm. after that, other newspapers were more and more willing to question what the NHS was doing, to question the fact that GPs weren't referring, to question the fact that a lot of GPs weren't even seeing patients at a time when, again, everybody was clapping the NHS and to do that was seen as sacrilege. But when you have an NHS insider, a district nurse with decades of experience, it's pretty hard to gainsay what she's saying, albeit she has to appear anonymously. And how many emails have we read out from NHS insiders where we've had to change their name because they fear for their careers when they speak out against the NHS? seen this constant tension between SAGE, the government's scientific advisory group, which is a lot of mathematical modelers and physicists. And then on the other hand, you've got the voices of the people who are trying to deal with people in the community who've had strokes and are too scared to go into hospital. I'm sure we've all had friends or know people where relatives have been admitted to hospital and haven't even been able to go in and accompany people. There's been this unfolding human tragedy of loneliness and fear, which is completely, you know, not regarded, doesn't have the same priority as the SAGE agenda, which is let's banish COVID from every corner of the kingdom, regardless of um, the kind of chaos and suffering it causes to millions of people. And on that, as we moved into the autumn, you landed another huge name interview after Sir Richard Dearlove earlier in the spring when you persuaded Lord Jonathan Sumption to come on Planet Normal, the former Supreme Court judge, of course, often cited as Britain's finest legal mind. I think lockdown has turned Lord Sumption into, you know, a sort of frontline campaigner yes. for liberty. Absolutely. Uh, in his interview with you, he called this lockdown the greatest invasion, didn't he, of personal liberty in our history? Very early on, I remember Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, saying that many people will get this and it will be a mild illness from which they'll make a full recovery. And then that tone changed, didn't it, to the point where we have had more and more shroud waving and we have become statistically the most frightened people in Europe, certainly if not in the world, with all the knock-on effects for our work, our industries, our schools, and so on. I mean, is, is that's a real danger, isn't it? The tone changed once the lockdown had been announced. And that, I think, was entirely predictable. If you are going to inaugurate the greatest invasion of personal liberty in our entire history, even including wartime measures, if you're going to do that, then you have to move straight into justification mode in order to justify what you've already done, and you need to frighten people into compliance. So the logic of these extreme measures was always to use fear as an instrument. What do you think we have in Boris Johnson, a famous libertarian, don't we, a rather swashbuckling champion of freedom, who finds himself, uh, as you say, in enforcing these remarkably authoritarian and often quite contrarian measures where people aren't allowed to hug their own children at a funeral. I don't know how much of a libertarian Boris Johnson is. I think that Boris Johnson is a Johnsonite, and that will lead him in different directions depending 
on the circumstances. Boris Johnson's main problem is that he is obsessed with PR and he is not diligent enough to study a problem carefully and in depth. Sumption was quite a difficult person to interview, Liam. You can probably tell there, there isn't a great deal of give there. I don't, I don't think you get many of our Scooby jokes. But I, do, <laughs> I don't know, I'd look do. quite good in a neck scarf. <laughs> <laughs> but he, of course, he's this remarkable authority. You couldn't get a, a more fully paid up member of the establishment. And yet, as you say, he has become this rebel guerrilla leader, hasn't he? Absolutely attacking the establishment for frightening people into compliance. The the phrase that jumped out at me was that what we've been subject to have been even more severe than wartime measures. And all these months in now, some days I think I wake up and, and, and it just suddenly occurs to you, my God, you know, just over Christmas, a few friends were texting saying, Am I allowed to drive into the next county and leave these presents on the drive for my mum and dad? And I am so looking forward, Liam. I don't want to have anyone ask me in my lifetime, are we allowed? You know, are we allowed? What what have we become when a trip to deposit Christmas presents on your parents' drive might be illegal or criminalise people? So I I really am grateful slightly intimidated by, but grateful to Lord Sumption for being this remarkable authority and having the intellectual legal firepower to know of what he speaks. Another interview who's well worth revisiting on our archive listeners. And he does weigh his words very, very carefully. And it's because he is so understated, if you like, and so learned that when he does use words like greatest and invasion, then his words pack a mighty punch. We've seen Lord Sumption, you know, writing columns in the Express and the Sun. <laughs> Quite incredible since he did that interview with you, which I personally think as a, as an onlooker was a bit of a personal release for him and the and the response to it. Again, it was front page news in the Telegraph, wasn't it? And then mm. another pages too. I think it really made him realise, if I may say so, the impact that he could have given his position as a former Supreme Court judge. Can I ask you, Liam, have have you been shocked by the speed with which we gave up our personal liberty? I have. I've been shocked by the speed and I've been shocked by the glee with which very mainstream members of our commentariat, people who present themselves as tolerant and liberal, absolutely demanding ever more stringent lockdown. Mm. I've been surprised and shocked by the lack of strategic balanced thinking about this lockdown. I've been surprised and shocked by the lack of evidence-based policy about the constant championing of the idea of cases rather than deaths. Mm. I've been absolutely shocked at the relentless mawkishness of our television news and our broadcast news in general Mm. throughout this process. And that's been one of the big themes of Planet Normal. I think the newspapers, our newspaper, other newspapers have tried to show a range of opinion, a balance Mm. of opinion, which is what a crisis like this needs and demands where broadcasters they've just been going for the you know the question is always prime minister why didn't you lock down harder and earlier you're clearly immoral i mean that's been the approach hasn't it it certainly has and of course it it reached its comedy apotheosis when 
Kay Burley and Beth Rigby of Sky and some of their colleagues who had been amongst the, you know, the sort of the witch finder generals, really (laughs) absolutely excoriating anybody who dared to, you know, veer from the true path of lockdown observance were then found out on a night on the town for Kay Burley's 60th birthday. By the way, Halligan, I cancelled all of my 60th birthday celebrations because they were not allowed. You did, I remember. not allowed. You had a night in with himself, didn't you? <laughs> my regards to Anthony, by the way, <laughs> who, without Anthony, your your partner, the very distinguished film critic, Anthony Lane, mm. again, Planet Normal would not have got off the ground and I'd just like to thank him on behalf of listeners well, I, I will pass on your thanks. I think he's. I think as he lives mainly in the nineteenth century, he still hasn't quite figured out what a podcast is. But it it seems to keep me occupied and cheerful. So I say that I'm not. I'm not congratulating myself. I wasn't allowed to have the party and the celebrations that I'd planned. Mm. And although I have, you know, we have been testing and querying we all have. the guidance. But I will abide by it. I don't agree with lots of it. I think much of it is absolutely ludicrous. But I think the low point of the year maybe came when the increasingly absurd First Minister of Wales said that Welsh pubs were allowed to stay open but not to serve alcohol. Because <laughs> that's what the committee came up with. Talk about a decision by committee there. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, you can have non-alcoholic mulled wine, Liam, but you can't have actually have a bloody gin and tonic. So, yeah, so we've been living in this period of absurdity and yet we've had these quite some quite prominent people who are shrieking at people when they go against some of these uh, rules, which some of us find very, very absurd. And many of the Sky News staff were, were suspended or, or reprimanded for being absolute hypocrites. So we, we do wonder how many of the people during this pandemic who've actually been having a rather comfortable time and then feel free to condemn people who have to make a living. We've had so many emails, haven't we, Liam, from listeners, you know, desperately trying to put food on the table and pay the bills. They don't have the the luxury of being able to work from home and have working class people bring them things in vans. I think if there was a patron saint of Planet Normal, apart from yourself, of course, it would be (laughs) Professor... Shinetra Gupta. Mm. We've talked a lot about people getting a hard time for questioning the orthodoxy. And I think she really takes on a a heroic status in that regard. Here Mm. we have a very distinguished professor of epidemiology at Oxford University, no less. She was one of the scientific minds behind the Great Barrington Declaration. She got together with colleagues at Stanford and Harvard, you know, pretty stellar seats of international learning. And they put together the Great Barrington Declaration, which I think still passes muster and still should be taken seriously. The idea that we should be shielding specifically by age, protecting the most vulnerable in our society, mostly the elderly, but also those with other pre-existing conditions. I think, wouldn't you say, Alison, she's probably one of your best interviewees. Yes, it was fascinating to talk to her and she's not a front of house person. She wouldn't seek the limelight, far from it. But I think it was for her, it was seeing her beloved science traduced. I think she simply couldn't believe what was happening. And she is, as you said, Liam, she is one of the world's leading epidemiologists. She really knows what she's talking about. Well, I've felt very protective of you as a woman. I must say I'm not a scientist, but I have felt that the lashing you've got for representing a perfectly legitimate scientific school of thought has been very wrong. You don't feel you're a pariah now. What what papers have you struggled to get published? 
So, so as I said, we didn't even try to publish the first exercise. So, so we have a new paper which considers the effects of something that is becoming a scientific fact, which is that there is pre-existing resistance to COVID-19 among people, probably due to previous exposure to other circulating coronaviruses. So that's all the paper does. Again, it sort of neutrally explores what happens when a proportion of the population is resistant, going from zero to, you know, 50%. And we haven't, so far, our efforts to publish it have been thwarted in that we sent it to one journal who said it wasn't of sufficient general interest, which we thought was a very interesting comment, given much of the public um, dialogue surrounding coronavirus has been around to what extent herd immunity is present already in the population. So you think there might be a sort of subtle censorship of points of view which are inimical to the mainstream view that's driven the government? I think there is a reluctance, definitely, to put forward a line of uh, thought that is orthogonal to the orthodoxy. There it is. There it is. Ah. Orthogonal to the orthodoxy. (laughs) Perhaps one of the world's less snappy catchphrases, but nevertheless, we claim it as our own, don't we? We we do. And um, we both have T-shirts, don't we, with orthogonal to the orthodoxy. And you said to me, what's orthogonal mean? (laughs) I said... (laughs) Right angles, love. It means right angles. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm still struck orthogonal to the orthogonal to the orthodoxy. So that was in September, and then moving into October, Planet Normal took up another cause, didn't we? We took up mm. the cause of Robert and Josephine, and that's when the listeners really rocketed because here were two people, Josephine in a care home, mm. Robert, her devoted husband. They've been childhood sweethearts, now both in their eighties. And he simply wasn't allowed to see her. No, he wasn't. And it really brought it home to me, as we've discussed, there are all the statistics and all the government pronouncements. And then you get an email from someone like Robert, who's in his 80s, lifelong conservative voter, a profoundly decent and loving man who is absolutely at his wits end. And he reaches out to us to say, please help me. What, what can I do to see my beloved wife? Alison, I've been in the media a long time. I've been a broadcaster for a long time. But I have to say, the moment that you read out that first email that we got from Robert, one of the highlights of my career. We've had so many moving emails from people who are dealing with the consequences of lockdown. Couldn't not read out this one from Robert in Evesham. Josephine and myself have recently celebrated our diamond anniversary from teenage sweethearts to 83-year-old sweethearts. Sadly, my wife is incarcerated in a very expensive nursing home paid for by our lifetime of careful savings. She is suffering from dementia and the love of my life I have not been able to hold in my arms since March. Liam, Liam, can you read the next bit? As each day passes, our connection becomes more tenuous as she fails to connect with me on FaceTime and I'm no longer able to see her even in an outside location. I live alone and take great care to limit exposure to this virus and certainly pose a lot less risk to Josephine and her fellow inmates compared to the staff who come and go every day at home with their families and mixing with a wide range of the public. Josephine and I, we can't even touch each other, and I should make it clear that I would have her at home with me in a heartbeat, as I did for two years previously, except she is now totally disabled, and I simply can't give her the care that she needs. 
All I ask is to be able to take care of the little personal things that I know she needs. Sorry to have rambled on, but I know you'll see the point I'm making. Gosh, it still brings tears to the eyes now, doesn't it, really? And um, I think that it was a privilege, actually, for us to be able to swing into action. You know, we're always nattering away and argy-bargying away to each other. (laughs) And we got got a chance to argy-bargy on behalf of Robert and Josephine. And we ran an interview with him in The Telegraph. And I think Robert suddenly got a reply to the letters to his MP. Surprise, surprise. Sometimes the media can move mountains. And of course, Alison, we invited Robert himself on to be a guest on Planet Normal. We interviewed him with the help of his son, helping us mm-hmm. with the technology. And at that moment, then the big broadcasters started to really get their teeth into the care home story, didn't they? It started to be raised in Parliament. I think yet again, without blowing our own trumpet, Planet Normal really lit a fuse there, bringing this care home issue and the fact that people couldn't even see their loved ones very much to the fore. Well, we'd also had the fantastic Rights for Residents campaign, standing up for their mothers and fathers trapped in care homes, and the Johns campaign. And it was wonderful to finally talk to Robert in person because we felt that we knew him, didn't we, as, a, as a, an honoured guest on the planet Normal Rocket. The Dementia Pressure Group Johns campaign is arguing that the current government guidance on visiting residences is unlawful and breaches human rights. Hmm. Do you think that what is being done to you and Joe breaches your fundamental rights? Well, it certainly has very little connection with humanity, if I put it that way around. Hmm. Human rights... Uh, of course, I should have rights to, to visit, and so should everyone under certain conditions. But it, it isn't humane what what is happening. You know, we don't know what's around the corner, and there's not that much time left for us. No one's taking a lease on our lives, are they, at 83 years of age? You sound... I mean, when I think about the situation, I know Liam and I, when we first read out your email, we were both in tears. I mean, you sound very strong and defiant. Do you ever just break down? Yes, I do. Absolutely do. On FaceTime last Friday, I had to stop. I I just broke down. I have to be careful. I don't think about it, to be honest, Alison. I have to be very careful because I'm always on on the verge it doesn't take much to push me into a position where I sit there and have a good cry. It helps sometimes to do that, but it doesn't help to solve the problem. I have to say, Alison, of all our guests, we've had some huge names. We've had front page headlines, but I'm proudest of our interview with Robert. He was fantastic, wasn't he? And listeners will know that about a week or so ago, Robert had the vaccine and he got a quick test in the care home. And he and Joe spent a lovely evening laughing, having ice cream, just like the old days. And he he said he cut her nails upstairs and downstairs, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Honestly, who wouldn't want a husband like Robert Styler? I mean, he's one in a million. Just to say, Liam, that the government has finally accessed some compassion And they did bring in, they revised the guidance about care home visits. And horrifyingly, 70% of care homes are refusing to carry out the new guidance, which will make uh, it much easier for family members to visit residents. And 
something that struck me during this whole period is we've seen the best in human nature and the worst. And that thing we identified very early on, Liam, the Warden Hodges tendency, you know, the Warden in Dad's Army, stickler for the rules, absolutely couldn't care less about the effect on people. And we've seen in the care homes and some of these other institutions, this absolute authoritarian tendency, wanting to abide by the rules for their own convenience. What Robert Scrabble is showing, very little connection with humanity, but how happy we are that they can now get back together, Robert and Josephine, childhood sweethearts. Amen to that. And the final interview from our archive we're going to feature on this end of year special is with Brian the Fisherman from Fraserburgh. We had orthogonal to the orthodoxy from Oxford epidemiologist Shinetra Gupta. And from Brian the Fisherman, we had another planet normal catchphrase, (laughs) the triangle toast eaters. How did you feel when you heard that the French had put a last minute demand on the table? Fishing stays as it is. The quotas stay the same for the next 10 years. I have absolutely no sympathy for them, that I would give them nothing. And the reason I felt like that is not because part of me did did think, okay, I'm a fair kind of person, maybe a transition period would be good. But then I thought back to how, how all the guys felt when they were forced to decommission their boats. There was no sympathy shown to us, none whatsoever. We were just basically told, this is what's happening. If you don't like it, tough. So nobody gave us any sympathy. Sometimes, you know, especially last week, I was watching the, the news channels and the way that some of the, the news readers were speaking about fishing, I was just absolutely disgusted. They, they just sneer at us as though we're just absolutely worthless. But I've got a word for them. I call them triangle toast eaters. <laughs> you don't like people that cut their toast into triangles, no? <laughs> because they have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> This Brexit deal is being widely welcomed, of course. It's clear the fishing communities have got a better deal, but perhaps not as good a deal as they'd hoped, certainly over the next five years of the fishing transition period. But I'd just like to say again that Brian was a really fantastic interviewee. I think he's my favourite guest, Liam, and you did a brilliant job. You you knew all the stuff about about it, but... I think that that's the best of us, isn't it? That's the best of Planet Normal. Brian described the community he'd lived and worked in in the most beautiful way. And I think people really appreciated that. And we need to hear more, more from the Bryans and less from the Matt Hancocks. That would be that would be one of my New Year's wishes. What a wonderful range of guests we've had, Alison. And we look forward, don't we, to welcoming many more from across the news firmament during 2021. Last week, our Christmas Eve special featured Prue Leith sharing her Christmas cooking tips. And this week, we wanted to end the year with a bang. Now, when I was a kid back in the 70s, I vividly remember a talent show called New Faces. Remember with Mickey Most? And I'll never forget the moment that the singer Patti Boulay burst onto our screens. Patty was born in Nigeria. She came to England as a 16-year-old and pretty much by accident, she became an A-list celebrity, a hugely talented singer, a chart-topping pop star and a role model for so many black youngsters and aspiring performers in general. She'd come from poverty, she'd followed her dream and she'd forged a hugely successful career. Now, it turns out that Patty Boulay, no less, is a huge fan of Planet Normal. (laughs) So I was delighted to interview her for this end-of-year episode And I started by asking her how she ended up coming to the UK back in the early 70s. 
The reason I came to England was because I, I don't know if you if you read this, but I was going to be a nun. What happened? <laughs> you were going to be a nun. How wrong can you be? Thank you. You don't even know half of it. God has a, a good sense of humor because, you know, I mean, Mother Thomasina found out that I was only there because I didn't want to kind of follow the career that my dad wanted me to. And, and I thought, oh, I'll just go into the convent. He'll have no jurisdiction over me. He wanted me to be a lawyer. Okay. I'm just not cut out to be a lawyer. A lot of Nigerian families, they're big on education, right? Doctors, lawyers. Oh, excuse me. I've got a sister in the military, in the US military, doctor. We've got a pharmacist. We've got a laureate of the Suborn. We've got a pilot, an aeronautic engineer. Anyway, we've got so many, because there was nine of us. And me, the black sheep of the family. <laughs> So I was number seven, so I thought I'd just escape this. And anyway, so Mother Superior asked my father to just give me three months to make up my mind whether I wanted to take my vows. And I had a sister studying here in England, so Dad sent me to London on, you know, three months sabbatical to decide whether I wanted to be a nun. And I ended up in hair. In that famous <laughs> musical, my God. Unbelievable, Liam. Elaine Page was in hair. Fluella Benjamin was in hair. Yes. You auditioned by accident, didn't you? Legend has it. Well, I was just, I was on a bus going by St. Giles Circus and it was Shaftesbury Theatre. And I saw this big head of hair. There was a long queue, long queue going around the block. And Madame Tussauds used to have like a rainbow colored head on top. You know, that was kind of like the logo in those days. So I just, went and joined the queue. And you thought you were queuing for Madame Tussauds? Yeah, I thought I'd go and see Madame Tussauds today. And when I got to the stage door, which was about two hours later, and I said, how much is it to get in? Jim, the stage door man said to me, you don't pay. And I thought, what are you talking about? I said, it's free. He said, no, this is an audition. I said, okay, how much is the audition? <laughs> and, and so what did you do? You must have had to come up. I mean, were you into singing as a kid? Did you have musical experience? Oh, Liam, you must know everyone in Africa, whether we have a good voice or bad voice, we sing. When we're sad, we sing. When we're happy, we sing. At funerals, we sing. When a child is born, we sing. Can you remember what you sang at that famous non-audition? Oh, yeah. What did you sing? Yes, The Sound of Music. The sound of music in my best von Trapp voice because I had seen it in the convent about 20 times. So you ended up in this hit musical, but you still wanted to be a nun, or how no, long did the actually, nun idea carry on for? <laughs> That's a very good question. And what did your dad say? Oh, he disowned me. Oh. Daddy disowned me for at least three years before he finally forgave me. You know, he said I had joined the vagabonds and strolling minstrels. <laughs> <laughs> oh dad when you entered my life i was a eight nine year old boy oh boy and my family a lot of my extended family are irish musicians and so we were always watching the talent shows and then you not only popped up on new faces which was a huge hit show of the 70s you blew everyone away. You got the only maximum score in the history of the whole competition. I mean, how how did you feel? I mean, you you were you were still a really young woman at that stage. I was numb. I tell you why I was numb 
because this is really crazy. I finally got an agent after three years in the West End and I changed my name to Patty Boulay. And, you know, my agent said, listen, I've got an audition arranged for you for a, a program called New Faces and it will help you with your new, you know, just launch your new name. And I looked at the program, I went, good heavens, no, I'm not doing that. No way. I said, it'd be the end of my career. So he arranged everything. I bought the ticket. Audition started, I think it was about 10 o'clock in the morning. I arrived in Birmingham at 1.30, thinking at that point, it will all be over. And I'll tell him I went to Birmingham and to the audition. I got there, there was a strike. Ah, the technician strike. Okay. Unbelievable. I was the last person to audition on New Faces. And then just when I was thinking, oh, I don't want, I was so nervous about it. My brother died in a plane crash. Oh. And um, so Stephen, who was my boyfriend at the time, said, well, you know, I mean, you can't go home for two weeks. You know, in those days, you couldn't just book on a flight. Yeah. So he said, why don't you just do the program? It will just be a distraction. And that's really, and I did the program. Maybe they felt my emotion. I think that was what it was. I think that everyone just felt the pain. That was behind the singing. It launched you as a as a real superstar of the late seventies and the early eighties. You've obviously got a world class voice. Uh, you've sung with Cliff Richard. You've acted alongside Helen Mirren. You've appeared on stage with Roger Moore. What an incredible career you've had over the years. If you could pick out somebody who you've worked with who really made you pinch yourself, who would that be? Oh dear, that's quite hard because there's been so many. But I would tell you that being on the Queen's Golden Jubilee Steering Committee was the one that really made me think, good heavens. So this is 2002. It was the Her Royal Highness's Golden Jubilee. I remember you marching down the mall That's with right. 5,000 gospel singers. Oh. <laughs> it was, that was, I'll tell you, that really was the height of my career. That was the only time that Patty is speechless. And how did it make you feel about the UK? You came to the UK pretty much when my family came to the UK as Irish Catholics, you know, it wasn't always easy for immigrant communities, was it? No, it wasn't. And yet, and yet I feel strongly, as I think you do, that, you know, the UK gives people a chance if they work hard. Oh, good heavens, yes. Absolutely. When I came, they still had signs saying no dogs, no blacks, no Irish. It, it, you know, I've always been of the mind that in every country there's good and bad. And so I just take what I see and try to find my place in that place. And in Britain, I just thought I would be a good example of what I guess a professional can be. So you're right. You just, you put yourself in the right place in Britain and you get rewarded the right way. I've traveled in Africa quite a lot. And um, mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen your very distinctive features, if I may say so, beaming down from billboards, advertising, all kinds of things, soap and... <laughs> You're a huge star in not just in Nigeria, but across West Africa. How often do you get back to Africa? Well, I have um, five basic healthcare clinics built in West Africa, three in Nigeria, two in Cameroon, and a school with Prince Harry's charity in Lesotho. So I used to go back to the opening of those. My, my family still there, so I often frequent Africa. But the, it's funny, I was the face of Lux for 29 years. The famous soap, of course. For yeah. 29 years. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, yes. How do you feel, given that you've spent sort of so much of your life away from Africa? Do you feel slightly 
dislocated or have you managed to combine your your proud African identity <laughs> and heritage with I know your huge patriotism towards the UK how have you managed to combine those two and do you ever see any contradiction between them sometimes a lot of the times I do because there's a comparison in upbringing respect consideration in faith I wouldn't say religion but in faith there's a lot to be taken from Britain. There's a lot to be taken from Africa. It, it's wonderful, really, because I've been married to my husband, who's English. You know, we've been together now 45 years. And it's interesting, really, to see how people's lives and cultures and society works. I think in Britain, there's a lot of complaining. They complain more and there's a lot of entitlement which the other countries don't have. But then in Nigeria also, there's a lot of fault in following. they kind of stuck between following Western culture and their very strong culture. The clash is there. So tell us about this sense of entitlement, Patty. Do you think that's becoming more prominent these days than when you first arrived in Britain? And what do you think we can do about it? Am I allowed to moan? <laughs> yeah, you can moan. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I just think that, for instance, take this virus, the COVID virus. We really haven't brought young people up in Britain to be responsible, to be considerate. There's two things, etiquette that we need in life, respect and consideration. We haven't brought them up to learn to do that so that when the virus started and they started saying that it's affecting older people, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, that's it. Young people are just going to think it's nothing to do with them. And I don't blame them because they learned it from us. They, you know, your children are what you bring up. I mean, if you listen to Twitter, it's like a pub brawl. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Honestly, it is a pub brawl. A pub brawl in a pretty bad neighborhood, I have to say. <laughs> unbelievable. In the worst neighborhood you could. It's like it's bringing out the worst in human nature that I have actually ever encountered. And I thought I had seen the worst. So, you know, we, we're not bringing our children up to really cope with the world. We train soldiers to go to war. And seriously, life is daily war. And yet our children are not trained to face it. So in your view, you think our children aren't as resilient as they used to be? No, and they're not. And you think not. that's a problem? It's a problem. For them, you know, it, it's a shame because we've thrown them to the wolves of technology, internet, without preparing them for it. Literally, just thrown them to the wolves, seriously. I remember a few years ago, there was, I think it's a nine-year-old boy, for some reason, hung himself. And I thought, oh, this is the beginning of the evil that's been planted to come out. Suicide is now, it's like a commonplace now. And because people can't cope with problems. There's certainly a lot of online bullying in the world, isn't there? Honestly, you see, this is what I mean. Yeah. A lot of school-age kids. It's a war. There's no safe haven from bullies because they can be bullied online even when they're at home. You think we're underplaying those problems, do you? We are underplaying those problems. We have done our young people a disservice, great disservice. And then the television, what they watch on television does not even reflect life. 
I don't know how many times I've turned down a celebrity get me out of here because I say this is not what I joined the industry for. What upsets you about that program in particular? Oh, it's just uh, the the nastiness. People's pain becomes something that is normal. You know, looking at people, it used to be that we could sympathize with people's pain and feel for them, and just it stops us causing any more pains. But now, somebody else's pain—it's a joke. You're a very well-known live performer. I know you're still very active on the live circuit. How's lockdown been for you? How bad has it been for the live music industry? Oh, it's it's been pretty bad. But for me, you know, I just think I'm alive. <laughs> We've lost money. It doesn't matter. I'm alive. And the thing is, with this life, if you die, it's the end. But with this life, there's always hope. Patty, we're we're at a difficult time, aren't we? We're suffering with coronavirus. We're about to leave the European Union. Quite a lot of people aren't happy about that. Lots of concerns about the future of Britain. How upbeat are you about the future of Britain, Patty Belay, as we go from a pretty tough year into another year that's looking pretty tough? I pray for Britain every day. I really do. It's funny. I pray for Britain. I pray for Nigeria. I'm very upbeat about the UK. I really am. Seriously, you have a system, you have an infrastructure that most of the world can only dream of. The UK will survive. You know, a lot of people would, even yesterday, condemning the Prime Minister. I'm going well. I tell you what, he is one of your sons, he's what brother or whatever. Can your brother run the country? No. Can you run the country? No. And easy lies the head that wears the crown. When you have chosen someone, Pray that they make the right decisions because they're not gods. They will never be gods. They will never know what's going to happen next year. They can only plan and hope that those plans will work. What a fabulous woman from none to hair the musical. Now that's a career leap, Liam. And also how fantastic to hear Patty being a proud British patriot but also combining that with all her African identity and her African perspective on what a great society we have, the infrastructure, the possibility of our people showing thoughtful Christian compassion towards the Prime Minister, which some of us forget to do. I absolutely loved it. So on to our reader emails, a selection of the messages that you, our listeners, send to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Since our podcast was launched back in May, the emails we've received have been both wonderful and hugely informative. Liam and I genuinely learn so much from you, our fellow Planet Normal citizens. One of our great informants for Planet Normal has been George, the NHS insider who has been directing us to some of the key data. Not his or her real name. Not his or her real name, like so many people sadly in the NHS can't afford to have their identity revealed. But George has been very determined to get out to the public a more balanced take that we don't always see in the mainstream media. So this week is a special New Year message. George said to us, numerically, the number of COVID patients is higher than the April peak. However, nationally, hospital bed occupancy is currently 85%. And that has been pretty consistent for three months. In contrast, the same quarter last year saw bed occupancy at 92%. I'm not sure what is driving all the hysteria about ICU capacity. 
ICU occupancy was only 75% today. Amazingly good for this time of year. So can I just say thank you to George, not their real name. You've been absolutely invaluable for Liam and I and for our listeners, providing a perspective that hasn't always been easy to come by this year. Absolutely. Planet Normal's a breath of fresh air, writes Mike. The havoc and damage caused by lockdown will take decades to recover from. The government's obsession with chasing COVID viruses around the country has resulted in far worse devastation, says Mike, than that caused by the virus itself. Tens of thousands of young lives are being ruined to, quote, save the NHS. Mm. Livelihoods and jobs are being destroyed. Loneliness and mental health issues are rapidly escalating. Businesses are collapsing and we're seeing unparalleled borrowing and economic decline. Sadly, the government seems oblivious to this growing crisis. If lockdown was a medicine, says Mike, no approval agency in their right mind would permit its use due to a lack of efficacy and unacceptable side effects. This is from David, fellow astronauts. <laughs> That's us. That's us. Matt Hancock's prognostication that by spring we will be through this seems a touch redolent of David Brent in the office, telling his staff that redundancies were on the way, but at least he knew his own job was safe. Hancock's sentiment will ring so very hollow for many of those still awaiting postponed medical treatment and private sector ex-workers, including many self-employed, who are set to experience anything but a springtime, thanks to the hysterical herd response of which Mr Hancock was in the vanguard. Well said, David. Hi, Alison and Liam, writes Paul. I love Planet Normal and look forward with huge anticipation to each new episode. Well, we hope you enjoy this extended End of year extravaganza, Paul. I'm watching the BBC coverage of the final stages of Brexit, says Paul. And all I can say is it can only be described as the last breath, the death rattle of the strongly Ramona Brussels Broadcasting Corporation. Roll on Andrew Neil's new news channel to provide some more balanced reporting, just like Planet Normal. Keep up the good work and all the best to both of you and your podcast for a hugely successful 2021. Onwards and upwards. Hear, hear. So as we've said, we've had such a variety of emails from, you know, nurses, doctors, teachers, business people, former NHS trust chairman, all that sort of thing. Here's one I really love. This is from Marcus, who describes himself, Liam, as a former rig pig. Do you know what rig pig is? Uh, does he work on the oil, oil rigs? Oil rigs, that's right. So he's got long hair, uh, he <laughs> likes heavy metal and he wears black jeans. I certainly hope. Well, Marcus, if you're listening, can you just ring in, ring in to confirm that you're... Mark my card. Mark your card. So this is a brilliant email from Marcus. It's exactly what we want, a portrait of his life. My wife and I are avid listeners to Planet Normal. Just like to give you a perspective from here in Norfolk as a young family. I left my well-paid offshore career on rigs to retrain so we could start a family and I didn't miss out on their childhood. Good man. I've been brought up in a Tory voting household and knew that my choices are my own. No one owes me a living and if I want something, I need to work for it. I left offshore at the end of 2018 and started business as a self-employed electrician. When COVID struck, I was in big trouble. Turns out I had timed my career change at the worst possible time. Our first baby arrived this August and I was up a creek without a paddle as my wife began maternity leave. My accountant informed me that I didn't qualify for any help due to not having a full tax year after swapping careers. Thankfully... The good folk of Norfolk are saner than the loonies running the country. Most customers, after a couple of weeks of lockdown, wanted works to continue. Our young family scraped by. Meanwhile, my sister and her partner have three pubs. 
two in Norwich and one on the North Norfolk coast. My sister employs 30 staff, chefs, bar staff and cleaners. She is the picture postcard of what the Tories are meant to represent. Young, dynamic, ambitious and employer to local young people. Since the second lockdown, she can only open two of the pubs. One is sat empty because they don't serve food, despite severely reducing numbers inside to cater for table service only. Ten jobs are now hanging in the balance. 400 yards down the street, her other city pub is open. It is total madness. Here in Norfolk, you'd struggle to get COVID if you walked around Norwich licking handrails while businesses go to the wall. Bojo has lost a family of voters this year. Good luck and happy new year to all on Planet Normal. Thank you, Marcus. That's just encapsulates everything we believe in on Planet Normal. Now, before we go, let's listen to a few more 15 seconds of fame calls from you, our Planet Normal listeners. Thanks to all who rang in over the Christmas period, answering our call for suggestions of one policy you'd like the government to adopt in 2021. Here's a selection of your voice messages. Hi, Robert Walker, retired GP from Cumbria and Planet Normal fan. The government needs to urgently get a grip on the NHS, particularly its bed capacity. Otherwise, we face lockdown every winter for the next 10 years. The NHS has got a taste for it and the tail has got to stop wagging the dog. Best wishes to all, you're great. Oh, hello, good evening. I love Planet Normal because at the moment we're living in an abnormal world. Uh, my name is Vivian Morton. I'm calling from Marlow, Buckinghamshire. My suggestion is the recall of, M- of MPs Act 2015 should be amended to allow constituents to initiate proceedings. And then we get rid of all 650 MPs in one go. Thank you. John from Guildford, I love Planet Normal, full of hope and common sense, but most of all the great and silly humour of Alison and Leah. I think the government next year should start treating the public with respect, be honest, no matter how bad the news might be. Hello, season's greetings from Adrian in North Yorkshire. And my thanks to Planet Normal for weekly proving that outside London there is some media sense and sanity after all. On policy, while considering the huge changes in people's lives it's going to make and the huge costs and disruptions it's going to entail, my suggestion is that the government holds a debate and then a referendum just to make sure that the British people are completely on board with the Green Agenda. A very happy new year to you both. Don't we have incredibly intelligent, thoughtful, perceptive <laughs> listeners? And, well, I mean, you know, they think we're funny, so maybe there's a big question mark hanging over some of their judgment. But absolutely, I totally agree with what people have said, and particularly the gentleman who said about this NHS tail wagging the dog. We cannot have this. Oh, the NHS might be in crisis. Let's, you know, let's let's close the schools. Let's ruin everybody's lives. We'd absolutely spend a huge amount of money on the NHS. I personally think they deserve. A lot more intensive care staff. We need to look at beds, but we need to absolutely make it fit for purpose so that the country isn't isn't held hostage every single winter. And chapeau from me to the listener who called simply for respect and for honesty. 
So that's it for our final voyage to Planet Normal in 2020. Strap yourself in for re-entry to the madness of planet Earth. Keep your spacesuit handy for next week, because we'll be back for another blast-off in our rocket of right thinking, our capsule of common sense. Happy New Year to all our listeners. We sincerely hope you enjoy Planet Normal. If so, you can help us by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple iTunes. And tell your friends, please, the more the merrier. And before we go, one final thing. Last week, you very kindly thanked me for persuading you to help launch the Planet Normal rocket. I wanted to say in return that without you, there's no way we'd have gotten this rickety spacecraft off the ground. And for my money, it's your determination, your drive and journalism that have given Planet Normal real rocket boosters. You've supercharged this podcast with your energy, your insights, and I'd like to thank you on behalf of our listeners for donning your spacesuit every week and joining me here in the Planet Normal cockpit. So here, Alison Pearson, in your honour, oh, is a quick closing gosh. montage of Planet Normal <laughs> 2020, some of our greatest hits. It's another blast off, so strap yourself in and brace, brace. If I ever find out that you're referring to me as Princess Nut Nut, we will be <laughs> disconnecting your oxygen tank. Is that quite clear? I spent a lot of my time as, as a young academic when I should have been going out and forming my personality, studying these things. Really like to go back to a time when I could be a lady who lunches rather than the <laughs> hospital bed occupancy correspondent. <laughs> You can be shaggy. You, you, you... Hey, Scoobs! All right, I'll be, I'll be shaggy. In intellectual capacity and dress sense, you are far more shaggy than Velma. Trust me, mate. This is my Velma moment. I'm trying to wrest back the Velma mantle from you. <laughs> oh, Scooby I can't do the noise. Back. You... Here's Velma stat of the week. You ready for this? Yeah. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. <gasps> was that you doing Scooby-Doo? It's just me. That thinking. was. Go on, do it again. This is, no, this is, a, this is a moment. Go on. No, I can't do it. I can't. No, I can't do it. Alison, let's hear from Lord Anthony Bamford. We had an order book of a billion and a half dollars, and by March the 20th, we had an order book of virtually zero. Nigel is ultimate Marmite man, I guess. But it almost looks as though Boris and Cummings had chosen to surround themselves with a sea of idiots veteran presenter it's sue cook it's not about information gathering anymore it's all about scoring points i don't want to bore you you know it's not my plan to bore you never <laughs> he says after a pause stand by co-pilot Planet Normal listeners will know that we've been in touch with Robert Styler. Robert emailed us a few weeks ago explaining the situation he found himself in with his childhood sweetheart, now my 83-year-old sweetheart, Josephine. And Josephine has been in a care home and throughout the lockdown, Robert's hardly been able to see her. We don't know what's around the corner. There's not that much time left for us. No one's taking a lease on our lives, are they, at 83 years of age? I think it may be that we can try and just add to the statistical you know, slew of information that we talk about the real human fallout from what's happening. We mustn't joke about these things, but no. you know, as we often say on Planet Normal, you've got to laugh, right? You've got to laugh at times like this. The Welsh government says clothes are non-essential. So we've decided to prove the point. And I thought, bloody good on you. Aussie slang, it's just the best. 
donkey retreats. He was in a bar. So on the first day of Christmas, Boris Johnson gave to me five family dinners, four more weeks of lockdown, three extended households, two vaccinations and a COVID mask for free. (laughs) Sorry about that, folks. So that's it for 2020 from Planet Normal. News and views from beyond the bubble. Stay safe, stay in touch with family and friends, and we'll be back in 2021. And as our beloved Planet Normal fades out of sight and Earth hoves into view, thanks to our producers, Rhys Gunter, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampett, and our editor, Theo Leludis. Until our next voyage, until next year, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.